Our church is built on the Bible being the true word of God that tells us the truth of God. Namely, that he is one God in three persons, eternal. He's always existed. He's not created. He's one eternal God through whom all things in heaven and on earth are created and are sustained. One God who is totally perfect and without fault, who created us to be in relationship with himself. But one God who is also in, in his total goodness also gives us the choice to truly choose to freely love and choose him. But in his great mercy, being totally good, he also gives us the choice to choose to reject him. And we choose constantly to reject him, but him being one who is rich in mercy, out of the outflow of his character, he condescended to us, lived among us, suffered like us, died for us, and in ultimate power, defeated death by rising back from the dead and defeating sin. This God is powerful. This God is loving. This God is the judge of all. And this God is the ruler. This God is the savior. And this God's name is Jesus. And our church is built on that because the Bible tells us that. And we believe that the Bible, we believe what the Bible says about God because God says we can believe the Bible. And we believe God because the Bible says that we can believe God. Okay? But surely there has to be more to it than that, right? I mean, after all, we're 21st century thinkers. We can look beyond just a powerful string of words that, that make us feel emotionally or spiritually uh, confident in something so that, so that we can actually look at the facts, right? The facts don't lead us to see that a book that was completed 2,000 years ago, made up of 66 individual different books, composed by roughly 40 different authors and written over a span of 1,400 years, and from locations ranging as far west as Rome, as far south as Egypt, and as far east as Mesopotamia, I mean, surely the facts don't lead us to think that that book could actually truly be from God, right? And if it was, that what we have today is actually the same. So if those are the facts, what confidence can we actually have in it as God's holy word? So if you're asking yourself that question now, or if you've asked it before, or, or if you haven't yet asked it, it's, it's a good question. And it's a question that needs to be asked. It needs to be asked and discussed because, as I'll contend in this talk, without the Bible being God's holy word, perfect and without error, we have nothing to stand on as Christians. So I mean, that is a big statement. So I'll say that again. Without the Bible being God's holy, inerrant voice given to us and perfectly preserved through the centuries, we have nothing to stand on as Christians. We may feel some kind of spiritual feeling when we're gathered together or when we look at the trees or the, the sky or maybe the ocean, but we cannot know God or his salvation or what he is like or what he expects from us if we don't have his word. Simply and profound as that. So I'm going to seek to address this question, and, and I hope to show you that you can and you should have confidence in this book, that it's the very voice of God perfectly preserved to this day. I hope to show you that you can have confidence in that. 
but so much more than just giving you an apologetic, a historical argument on why you should have confidence in this book. I want to show you that you can trust it because God says that you can trust it. And history simply backs up what God says. And he is the author of all history, is he not? So, my main goal this morning is to help all of us to see God in his word. And as we see God, I hope that your love for God grows. And as you listen and think through this, my prayer for each one of you is that you would love and treasure and want to know and believe and obey God's word. So that when you hear this, you look at the Bible as a field in which you discover a great treasure. And when you discover this treasure, you realize that you must have it. And you go and you sell everything else in order that you can obtain it. In order that you can take hold of this field, this great, eternal, powerful, saving treasure. Namely, the word who became flesh and dwelt among us in whom glory is beheld, and through whom God is known. Okay, so that's my goal this morning, to show you how he shows himself. But looking at the history of, God's, of having God's word, we, we must understand that it's not an altogether beautiful history. It's a bloody and messy history in a lot of ways. But it is an altogether totally glorious history, displaying the goodness and the promises of God. So here's a statement on which this talk will rest. We can trust that the Bible we have today is the same as when it was written down originally because when there is divine inspiration with divine purposes, there is necessarily divine guarding against corruption or change. When there's divine inspiration with divine purposes, there's necessarily divine guarding against corruption or change. And when this divine word is heard and understood, its power is indisputable and glorious. It will accomplish that which it intends to accomplish. Okay, so what I mean is that when God is the one working to give us his words and he has reasons for doing so, namely for him to be known and to make him known, Romans 1.5, then he will absolutely guard unto the end that which he has given and shown to be true. And it will show his name to be absolutely glorious through and through. And all of this, all of that is dependent on us believing that there is such a thing as truth. And when we believe that there is such a thing as truth, we believe that there is a God and that this God has thoughts about everything. And these thoughts about everything are the definition of truth. Okay? So in weighing out the glory of God, we must understand why it is glorious and why we can see it in that way, even among all of its messy history. So I don't want to bore you with with these, these things that get complicated and, and these details of history, but, but track with me through this next part. It's not too complex, it just can get complicated. But Josh McDowell, in his book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, says this, 
No other written work has been so attacked, scrutinized, and persecuted as the true canonical books of the Bible. From emperors, monarchs, and dictators who tried to destroy the words of Scripture to intellectual attempts to discredit the content of Scripture, the Bible has withstood all forms of opposition. But the Scriptures have not just withstood the attempts of people to destroy them, They've also withstood the test of time and with greater ways than any other historical text ever. All right, and so though there have not yet been found any original manuscripts of the Bible or any ancient text, religious or not, and by religious I mean the documents that the authors actually wrote on, what we do have is an abundance of copies of the original manuscripts, some of which date back to the first century and following and for which, for the Bible, we have more than any other ancient work in history. So what that means, then, is that these copies were written down and distributed from the originals themselves. They were copied and distributed, copied and distributed, copied and distributed. And as Josh McDowell again says, as with any other work or collection of works, the greater the number and the earlier the dating of the possessed manuscripts, the easier it is to reconstruct a text closer to the original and identify errors or discrepancies in the copies that follow. And he continues, fortunately, the abundance of manuscript copies of the Bible makes it possible to reconstruct the original text with virtually complete accuracy. Therefore, he continues, we can have confidence that when the scriptures are translated into our own language, we are reading the same thing the authors originally wrote down because we can compare it to the near original manuscripts. So William Tyndale, who was executed by strangling and then burning at the stake in 1536 for his work in the Reformation, under the providence of God, is possibly the one man most responsible for much of what we read in our English Bible today. John Piper says of Tyndale, I personally am deeply moved that the words of God, by the words by which God speaks to me today, are in significant measure the English words and diction chosen by a man whose God-given skill was such that his translation has lasted 500 years and whose faith was such that he was willing to die to give us this gift. Scholar and historian David Daniel wrote of Tyndale in this way, William Tyndale gave us our English Bible. The sages who are assembled by King James to prepare the authorized version of 1611, so often praised for unlikely corporate inspiration, took over Tyndale's work. Nine-tenths of the authorized version's New Testament is Tyndale's. The same is true of the first half of the Old Testament, which was as far as he was able to get before he was executed outside Brussels in 1536. And to further quote Piper on Tyndale, we see this. Just to give you a small taste of what we owe to him, here are a few phrases directly from Tyndale, with not the slightest change in 500 years, through the King James Version, the Revised Standard Version, and into the English Standard Version. So this list of phrases is as follows. Let there be light. Am I my brother's keeper? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The signs of the times. He went out and wept bitterly. Speak with tongues of men and of angels. Fight the good fight. 
Piper says, when you realize that these words and hundreds like them were chosen in English by a faithful martyr 500 years ago, the preciousness of this book we hold takes on a very personal character. The Bible we have today in our language is owed to men who died horrible deaths for the love and sake of the gospel. And men and women who have worked throughout history to put God's word into other languages have died for others to have the same. What this doesn't do is it doesn't take away from the power of God in his word. Because if we we look back through history, back into the scriptures, we see that God's plan all along was to use people to carry out his word to others for his name's sake. But what that does mean is that it adds a lot of treasure and preciousness to this gift that we have. But, as I said at the beginning, the treasure of the word of God does not owe ultimately anything to men but to God himself. And he is the one who has spoken and thereby given worth to the scriptures. And he is the one who gives it power and has promised to keep it true and without error. We know Romans 1.16 and 2 Timothy 3.16 that say, The gospel is the power of God. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable. Okay, so with all of that as introduction... Let's, let's dive into our text for this morning. And through, through the reading and discussing of our text, I hope to carry out my original goal. Namely, for the love that David has for the word of God to transfer to our hearts. And that by that love, contagiously taking root in our hearts, that we would see, love, treasure, want, and obey the word of God more than ever before. Michael prayed it well. If you've you've never loved the Word of God before, you're in a good place here this morning. If you've loved the Word of God in the past, but now your love is, is stale, you're in a good place here this morning. If you now love the Word of God and it's the, the very fuel of your life, then you're in a good place this morning. Not because my words are going to somehow give you something greater, something great in your hearts, but because the word of God, when it is read and heard through the power of the Spirit of God, works mightily. So I hope to help us all to see and treasure that this morning. Because when this divine word is heard and understood, its power is indisputable and glorious, and it will accomplish that which it intends to accomplish. Psalm 119, 41 through 48. If you haven't already turned there, I invite you to turn there. Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then shall I have an answer for him who taunts me, for I trust in your word. And take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for my hope is in your rules. I will keep your law continually forever and ever, And I shall walk in a wide place, for I have sought your precepts. I I will also speak of your testimony before kings, and shall not be put to shame, for I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. Pray with me. 
Holy Spirit, would you come and guide the rest of this talk? God, would every word that's spoken be words from you? Would you bring glory to your name and to your word through this talk? Holy Spirit, would you, would you take away every word that's not of you? Would you sort out the words that, that don't come out right out of my mouth, Lord? And would you open the eyes of our hearts to see you and to love you deeper? Lord, it's, it's in your word that we trust, and it's in you that we trust to give us your word. So would you, would you do this now through this talk? In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so, so here's how we're going to break down the scripture. Here's the outline. One, God's word is what awakens faith and brings our salvation through his spirit. Two, God's word teaches us what to say when we're questioned for our faith. And three, God's spirit writes his word on our hearts and teaches us how to worship. Okay, so as, as a side note, I'm going to use a bunch of different supporting scriptures, and since I don't have them on the screen, I, I encourage you to take notes and to write everything down so you can look at it later. Let's, let's dive in. Point one, God's word is what awakens faith and brings our salvation through his spirit. Verse 41, let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your word. So that right there, that's a powerful word, verse. It's a powerful verse because it shows us several things about how God works. So we see right away, right from the get-go, a tie between the love of God and the salvation of God coming from the Word of God. Do you see that? Immediately after he says, immediately connecting the love that he's asking for with the salvation that comes from God's Word, and this means that the salvation that comes from the Word of God is what produces faith in the hearts of people and causes them to see God as glorious and worth loving. We see elsewhere in Scripture, God showing His greatest gift, namely His Spirit, coming to us in this great gift of grace where He saves us through the hearing of God's Word and the receiving of His Holy Spirit. Okay, so listen to this. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it's not your own doing. It's a gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Ephesians 2.8 Let me ask you only this, Paul says in Galatians 3.2 Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And then three verses down and in 3.5 Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the faith or by hearing, by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Okay, clear question. Did you get the Spirit? How did you get the Spirit? Working for it through the law or by hearing with faith? Answer, by hearing with faith. Okay, great answer. But hearing what with faith? Hearing necessarily implies something being heard, something being spoken. Okay, so if something's being spoken and heard, well, what is it? Romans ten seventeen gives us a great answer to that says, so faith comes from hearing. Yes, it's confirmed. There it is. But, but wait. And hearing through the word of Christ. So wait a second. This lines up perfectly with what David says in verse 41 of our psalm. Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord. 
your salvation according to your word. So what we see worked out here is that one, faith comes through hearing the word of God. Two, that faith is given by hearing is a gift from God that gives us his spirit and it's not something that we bring on ourselves. Three, there is no salvation without faith. And four, if there is no spirit without salvation and no salvation without faith and no faith without hearing the word of God, then God's use of his holy words in bringing glory to his name in our salvation is infinitely huge. He said, what all this points to is that the word of God accomplishes that which it commands. Always. God said, let there be light. And there was light where there hadn't even been a knowledge of what light was before that. Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had been dead four days came out. John 4, 43 and 44. So where does our faith come from? From the word of God. How? Listen to 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God, for God who said... Let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. So what this means then is that the guy out in Africa or Yemen or China or your neighbor who's never heard the name of Jesus through the reading or the telling or the preaching of the gospel of God's word, that it is impossible for him to experience salvation. It's impossible for him to know God. There's no other way for someone to experience the saving grace of God through the Spirit-giving faith in Jesus than through the hearing of God's Word. But not only does the hearing of God's Word give us salvation through the Spirit coming to us and giving us faith, but it is also through the hearing of the word of God that God continues to pour out fresh manifestations of his spirit on us who hear and believe. It cannot be a coincidence that Paul commands in Ephesians 5, 18 and 19, be filled with the spirit, addressing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And then parallel to that in Colossians three sixteen, he says, he commands, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs. Being filled with the word of Christ and being filled with the Spirit are parallel because the Spirit comes where the word comes and fills us with faith, Piper says. He continues, and when the Spirit comes, he comes to make much of Jesus, which means he comes to ignite joy in our hearts over the glory of Jesus. And there will be no greater joy than the fullness of joy in the glory of Jesus, which means the word of God is worth more than anything this, word, this world can offer. So that's point one. God's word is what awakens faith and brings our salvation through his spirit. Point two. God's word teaches us what to say when we're questioned for our faith. Verse 42, Psalm 119. Then I shall have an answer for him who taunts me, for I trust in your word. In verse 46. I will also speak of your testimonies before kings and shall not be put to shame, for I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. So immediately following verse 41, where David asks God to give him salvation as he promises in his word, 
David is now able to give an answer for the hope that is in him because he hears and trusts God's word and as a result has the spirit of God to give him the words he needs in the moments that he needs them. Matthew 10:19 says, "When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given you in that hour." Or again in Luke 12:11 and 12, Jesus says, "And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious how you are how you should defend yourself or what you should say." But the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you are to say. So there are two things I'll point out here. One, the time when the Spirit gives us words to say is not meant only for the moments when we're in prison for our faith or we're being questioned before those of high authority who don't like what we believe. It's not just for that. Though it certainly is promised that the Spirit will give you the words that you need in those moments. But I say it can't just be for those moments because Luke points out different times that you will be questioned. He says you'll be questioned before synagogues or the rulers or the authorities. So it's different to be questioned before the church than to be questioned before secular authorities. Yet, Jesus promises that his spirit will teach you what you need to say in each situation. And in general... Our lives here in the States, we don't face that kind of life or death questioning for our faith. However, we certainly face opposition and questioning. The Spirit promises to teach us what we need to say in those moments. And secondly, there are different ways in which the Spirit teaches us an answer for Him who taunts us. One is that He gives us in specific moments, through our prayers, guidance in who we should talk to or how we should say what we're to say. I know this, I know this working in the Spirit experientially in my own life because I'm often speaking to someone at school or at work and I don't know what all I'm going to say. I don't know where the conversation's going to go in regards to the gospel. And it, just because the Spirit gives me words to say doesn't mean that afterwards I don't regret that I, I didn't say something that probably would have been better to say or I said something that might not have been completely right. But I can see that the Spirit is working in two ways in that. One, that He gave me a desire to talk to somebody about the gospel. And two, that He gave me something to say. Just because he promises to give us words. doesn't mean we will always carry it out exactly right, but he is faithful to give us words in the moment. And the second way that the Spirit teaches us what we need in the way is the way that David says in our psalm. He says, Then I shall have an answer for him who taunts me, for I trust in your word. And 46, I will also speak of your testimonies before kings and shall not be put to shame. For I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. The Spirit teaches what we need, not by inventing some kind of new scriptures in our hearts and minds, but by bringing to our memory the very scriptures that we have stored up in our hearts. As David says in Psalm 119, 10 and 11, and really throughout the whole chapter, Unless we take our example from anyone without first looking first and foremost to Jesus, look at how he responds when he is challenged and questioned. 
In Luke 4.1, it says that Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where he was tempted and challenged and questioned. Okay, and so what were his responses? He was given the right words to say for every moment in the Spirit. For it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Jesus quoted scripture every time. And clearly Jesus was not just full of the Holy Spirit, but he was full of the written word of God. The Spirit taught him in that very hour by bringing to his memory scriptures that he had learned before. He had prepared himself for the moment that he would be tempted by memorizing and storing up God's words in his heart. And in the moment when he needed the right words to say, the Spirit taught his memory the right verses to answer the challenges against him. My friends, we have this same word, we have this same spirit, if we have heard these words of God and believed on the Son of God. First Peter 3, 14 and 15 says, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always prepared, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And so, as we see in 1 John 2.20, then you who believe have been taught by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. Okay? You all have knowledge. Knowledge of what? Go back up to verse 14. It says, The word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. So you have knowledge of the word of God, and you overcome the evil one. David was strong in the word of God in which he loved. Jesus was strong in the word of God in which he loved. May we, too, church, be strong in the word of God, love it, find our strength in it, because when we find our strength in the power of the word of God, we overcome the evil one. So that's point number two. God's word teaches us what to say when we're questioned for our faith. And point number three, God's spirit writes his word on our hearts and teaches us how to worship. Verse 43 says, And take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for my hope is in your rules. I will keep your law continually forever and ever. We see all the way back at the beginning of the law being given in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 6, we see three very specific things. One, that God is one. Two, that he is to be loved with every ounce of our being. And three, that he is not just giving his commandments for them to be honored sometimes, but he's actually going to place them on our hearts, on the hearts of those who receive his commandments, so that they would always be remembered and honored. But... Since these laws are given to sinful people who, even if they remember the law, they could not always keep the law. In fact, they broke it time and time again up to the point where they, they were not loving God with all their hearts and they were not honoring him as the only true God. So that when we get to Jeremiah 31, verse 30, we see that God's going to change things up from what he said then in Deuteronomy. 
God says, but everyone, this is everyone who's tried to keep these commands and failed miserably, says, but everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Signaling that since they have his perfect law, and they have disobeyed his perfect law, there's necessarily a just payment due to each one who has not kept this law perfectly. This is God's logic, and this is just. Okay, but thankfully, God does not leave it there. Right after he says, each one of you shall pay for his own sin, he says that he's going to show his amazing mercy. Jeremiah 31, 31. God says that this is that, where you were, but I'm going to do something to change it. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant, not like the covenant I made with their fathers, my covenant that they broke. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. Okay, and then we see when we get to Hebrews 10, verses 11 and following, we see that it shows exactly what this new covenant is in God to his people. It says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. So that's the old covenant. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, the new covenant, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for, for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And here's, here's our text for now. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is my covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds, and I will remember their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. So what does this mean? It means that for everyone who hears God's word and trusts in him, he writes his law on our hearts. He seals us with his perfect law through the blood of Christ so no longer does any one of us need to go to the other to say, know the Lord through doing this or that, because Christ, through his spirit, is writing his law on our hearts through his word, so that we can actually choose to do what is right. We don't have to wonder if any one specific thing is going to break or keep God's law, because we don't follow the written law in the same way that the believers under the old covenant did. Instead, listen to this, instead, God gives us a new heart. Ezekiel eleven nineteen says, pointing forward, I will give them one heart, and I will put a new spirit within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. So not only does he promise to write his laws on our hearts, but he promises to give us a new heart with which we can actually follow his laws. So that we can say with David, my hope is in your rules. I will keep your law continually forever and ever. 
And we can actually have confidence that God will not take his word out of his word of truth from us. We are sealed with his spirit, given a new heart, and we can therefore keep his commandments. And what is the greatest commandment of God? Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Do you want to know how to follow God and keep his commandments? Hear his words, trust his words, and his spirit will come and teach you everything you need to love him with all your being. You want to know how to live out the will of God in your life? Follow this procedure. Will it honor God if I do or do not do this, or will it not honor God if I do or do not do this? <laughs> if you do that, when you have Christ's Spirit living in you, empowering you to love God as your greatest treasure, then you can have confidence that you are actually able to carry out the will of God for your life. Okay, and no, no, what this doesn't mean is that those of us who follow Jesus always perfectly obey him as we ought. We still live in this body of sin. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul, Romans 7, 24 and 25. So, as we join our voices with Paul in saying, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, we can also echo the cry of David in verses 47 and 48 of our psalm. For I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. The way we worship God, since he has given us his word, sealed us with his spirit, written his law in our hearts, the way we worship him is we love and worship him by finding great treasure and uninhibited love for his word. When our greatest delight is to meditate on the word of God, then it only follows that our greatest delight will be in God. And when our greatest delight is in God, then we will honor God with our entire being. So we can trust that the Bible that we have today is the same as when it was written down originally because when there's divine inspiration, namely the Holy Spirit giving the words to the authors, with divine purposes, namely for God to be known and for us to make him known, then there's necessarily divine guarding against corruption or change. And when this divine word is understood and heard, its power is indisputable and glorious. This word will accomplish that which it intends to accomplish. So you might be here this morning hearing these words of God, and for the first time, you're not just hearing them, but you're actually listening to them and finding that there's life in them. And if you've heard life in the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus through his words being spoken, then I invite you, I, I urge you to make him Lord. Okay, not just to hear that, but to make him Lord of your life. If you don't know how to do that, it's understandable. And Jesus says, in order for you to do that, you have to be born a second time. 
Okay? In other words, God has to do a work in your life. God has to cause you to be born again. <laughs> I have good news for you. If you're asking that question, how do I make him Lord of my life? And the Spirit is in the process of birthing you. And you are seeing, beginning to see him as glorious. Don't just leave it there. Respond to him. Will you trust in him? Will you make him Lord of your life? Will you see and hear this great treasure in the word of God in Christ and trust him with your life? Or you may be here and you've already seen God to be glorious and worth following. And he has borne you a second time. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through water and spirit. I know, I know this is most of us here. So my hope and my prayer for each one of us this morning is that you will now have a deepened love and obedience for God's word. And you will make it your ambition to treat his word as the great treasure in which you sell everything else in order to obtain. That's my prayer for us this morning. Everyone stand up and, and let's listen as I read this to go. This is Ephesians 3, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, namely his spirit, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Thanks for listening. This message has been brought to you by Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. And if you'd like to learn more about our church, please visit us on the web at www.baconscastle.com.